Blog Talk Radio. We had tried calling the cops. We had tried doing everything. Nothing worked. Nothing. After hearing 59-year-old Lee Woolard's story, you may think he did what any family man would do. Or you may agree with a Florida jury and think he went too far. But either way, you're likely to wonder, does Woolard's punishment really fit the crime? Never. <laughs> Never in my wildest dreams did I think I would be here. It, it, I, I still have a hard time believing. It's unbelievable. Lee Woolard's troubles began six years ago. He was a professional with a master's degree in Davenport, Florida, living with his wife and their two daughters and working at SeaWorld. When his youngest daughter, Sarah, began dating a 17-year-old troubled teenager with no place to live, Wallard and his wife, Sandy, took him in. You know, if someone needs help, we'll help them. Did it go okay initially? For about a week. <laughs> it started out, his behavior was fine. I'd ask him if he would take the garbage out or clear off the table, and it was, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am. But Sandy Wallard says the relationship with the boy whom we agreed not to identify, soon soured. This young man was taking my daughter out at night after we had put her to bed and we had gone to bed. And he was disappearing with her. He would disappear for days at a time with her. And she's 16 years old. The Woolards asked him to leave, but nothing kept him out of the house until May 14, 2008. As Lee was taking a nap, his daughter and her boyfriend began to fight. You heard a loud noise. Yeah, it was like, yeah, like, like you were throwing, throwing stuff against the wall, like, like you had a tennis ball and you just boom. You know, but then came cries for help. What did you think? I had no idea. You know, it's not like my family to ask for help. So I grabbed my 357 and put and loaded it with shells. That's a large gun. That's a heck of a gun. Yes, you, you even wing someone with a 357, they're in deep trouble. According to Wallard, the young man lunged at him and punched this hole in a wall. The teenager disputes that, but no one disagrees about what happened next. So I fire a warning shot into the wall. I said, next one's between the eyes. And the kid turned around and just hurried out the door. And that was the end of that. Not quite. Wallard was charged with shooting into a building with a firearm, aggravated assault, and child endangerment. And when he went on trial a year later, a jury convicted him of all charges. And then Judge Donald Jacobson sentenced him. You sentenced him to how long? I sentenced him to 20 years in Florida State Prison, which is the mandatory minimum. 20 years. And what that means is that he will serve every day of 20 years in state prison. And welcome in, ladies and gentlemen of America. This is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. Tonight is no exception, as we take a look at cruel and unusual sentencing, abuse in America's courts and its prisons. We visit that topic tonight. Folks, hang on to your seats. AJC Radio takes off right now.
And there you have it. I'm Lamont Banks along with Lisa Stewart, Cliff Stewart, Dennis Merritt, and William Williams and the AJC radio team tonight as we are happy to have you and appreciate you joining us tonight for this special discussion. Uh, joining us tonight, a uh, interview that was done earlier this week with uh, Molly Gill. She's Director of Federal Legislative Affairs for FAM, Families Against Mandatory Minimums. We got a very one-on-one exclusive interview with her. You're going to hear joining us at the top of the hour from now. Uh, we're going to be joined by Melissa Hamilton, uh, is, a, is actually a visiting criminal law scholar at the University of Houston Law Center. Folks, it's going to be a good one as we take a look into one of the most complex problems of the criminal justice system uh, of our time and dealing with cruel and unusual sentencing, disparities in those sentencing, the death penalty, you name it, just anything that reeks, if you will, of injustice. We're going to visit that tonight. Lisa, the disclaimer for our listeners, please. Yes, none of us at AJC Radio are lawyers, and we do not provide legal advice. Although we go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we do recommend that you consult a lawyer if you want legal advice. In this time of misinformation, government-controlled media, and government corruption, it's sometimes hard to get to the truth, but we must try. It is not our intention to libel or discriminate against anyone, and the opinions expressed by callers and guests do not necessarily reflect that of a just cause or AJC Radio. And we want to thank you for tuning in and choosing to spend a little of your evening with us. And thank you for that, Lisa. And uh, again, folks, feel free to dial into the conversation tonight, 319-527-6216, 319-527-6216. And uh, definitely gather all your family, your friends, your neighbors, whoever you think uh, needs to hear this. And I would say that's everybody as we deal with an issue of a criminal justice system that is broken and has become an oppressor, if you will, a dictatorship in sentencing in this country. And they say all the time, does the crime, does the time rather fit the crime uh, that was committed? Not to even mention the fact folks that are in prison wrongfully uh, who were sentenced to outrageous sentencing and never committed a crime. Uh, all those topics we're going to deal with tonight as we get ready for this show, uh, dealing with a very uh, important issue, William, as, as you know, this is somebody's mother, somebody's father somebody's sister, somebody's brother, uh, something has to be done in this country, and America holds the record uh, for insanity, if you will, in a criminal justice system and sentencing and abuse of power, uh, whether it's by prosecutors. Uh, Of course, the mandatory minimum puts all power in the hands of prosecutors, taking them completely out of the hands of the judge, and it just doesn't fit right. Your thoughts on that? Well, that's true, you know, and that's come up. Uh, for a while now, people have talked about these mandatory minimums and how, you know, in in most cases they're not fitting, you know, they're they're abuse. I mean, because the crime did not add up to it. I mean, and and in the case that that we were listening to or the clip that brought us into this show, that was that was insane. Twenty years, and he would have to serve every day, every day, and and you know, but it's it's that's our system. Our system is absolutely broken. No, without question. And again, we're going to visit that topic. That particular uh, uh, story uh, deals with those issues, the Lee Willard story. Uh, we're going to listen actually to part two and part three of that uh, story, dealing with what this man has suffered, what he has went through, uh, you know, and, and this is something that has to be addressed. Cliff, we were talking, uh, I believe, a week ago in regards to the young lady who got sentenced uh, for, for sitting or firing a warning shot uh uh, in the state of Florida, I believe it was, and she was sentenced to some time that the appellate court uh, actually overturned the conviction 
and given her the opportunity for a new trial. I think we were referencing the fact that uh, Trayvon Martin's killer, Mr. Zimmerman, right. uh, he didn't send a warning shot. He shot, the, he shot this kid in cold blood and was granted being found not guilty. Yeah, and it, it is such a, uh, you know, it, the disparity in the sentencing is, is you know, there there is no, um, I mean, it's too far away. You, 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 I mean, and those two issues are so far from each other. Here you have, you have a woman who was abused by an individual and is in fear of being abused by the same individual again and fires a warning shot saying, I'm, I'm trying to protect myself and my family from harm again. And I fire a warning shot and I'm the one who ends up going to prison. Then you have, you know, uh, someone who, uh, like Zimmerman that follows uh, Trayvon Martin around in essence gets out, attacks him, starts to get beat and then uh, says he's defending himself. Well, you're the aggressor in that situation. There is right. you, you, there is no defense. You attack the person. So you don't have the right to defend yourself. You're the problem. And, uh, and totally gets off and, and away with it. It's those type of uh, sentencing disparities that really, really outline and expose the fact that um, America's justice system is totally gone rogue. Well, and we're going to address that issue tonight, Dennis. Uh, something you know really troubling, uh, and th- th- let me make this very clear as we deal with this issue. Uh, it goes directly to the problem with mass incarceration. It goes directly to the problem of the suicide rate in America's prisons. It goes directly to the cruel and unusual punishment outside of the sentencing that you get, depending on how you're sentenced sometimes from the court. Many times you go into the state or federal penitentiary with a preconceived reputation that may find yourself in solitary confinement based upon the fact that the judge sentenced you to some crazy amount of years. So they believe, well, this has to be a troublemaker. This has to be something. And then they end up implementing the solitary confinement issue. People are down there, have been down there as long as up to 20 years. So it breeds. Injustice breeds injustice, and it breeds injustice on and on. Folks, on the other side of the break, we're going to deal with this topic. Coming up on the other side of this break, the interview with Molly Gill, Director of Federal Legislative Affairs for FAM, Families Against Mandatory Minimums. Had a great conversation with her. You're going to hear that interview on the other side of this break. This is AJC Radio, bringing the message of justice all around the world, addressing the system the criminal justice system, cruel and unusual sentencing and punishment in America's prisons. We're going to deal with that on the other side of this break. We'll be right back. AJC Radio and our team extend a personal invitation to all the members of Congress to be a part of this dynamic initiative called Spotlight on Capitol Hill. We welcome you, whether you're Republican or Democrat or Independent, whatever you might be, we join together to bring to the attention of the American people the positive things that our elected officials are doing on Capitol Hill. Tonight, AJC Radio salutes you, and we extend that invitation to all the members of Congress as we continue to shine the light called Spotlight on Capitol Hill. It's just going to get better from here. Let's get on board. Here are 50 white guys. 
Here are 50 black guys. Here's how many white guys can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. The chances amount to one out of 17. Now here's how many black guys can expect the same thing. The chances are one out of three. Why? Lots of reasons. It's complicated. But one thing is clear. There's racial bias at every level of the criminal justice system. When blacks and whites commit the same kind of crimes, blacks are more likely to be arrested. Once arrested, they're more likely to be convicted. Once convicted, they're more likely to serve longer sentences. Look at the numbers in America's so-called war on drugs. About 14% of American drug users are black, as are about a quarter of drug sellers. Yet blacks are 34% of the people arrested for drug crimes. And those convicted of drug crimes, 46% are black. By the time we factor in sentencing, there are actually more black drug offenders than white ones in state prisons and in federal prisons. In the end, the incarceration rate for drug crimes is 10 times higher for blacks than it is for whites. These are the facts. Racial disparity in America's war on drugs is one big reason that one out of three black men can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. I can solve difficult problems for a Fortune 500 company. I can run a successful business. I can manage your home improvements. I can publicize your message. I can motivate your audience. I can put my military experience to work for your company. I can teach your children. I can boost your bottom line. I can add value to your workplace. I could be a loyal and productive employee. But I can't put my skills to work for your organization if I'm not given the opportunity. If you don't recognize my talents and ability. If you don't hire me. If you don't have an open mind and a workplace that's open to everyone. If you don't realize that America works best when everybody works. What can you do? What can you do? What can you do? You can remember that it works. It's what people can do. It's what people can do that matters. Nearly 50 million Americans have disabilities. Capitalize on their talents with employment practices that benefit everyone. Learn more at whatcanyoudocampaign.org. Diversity is a huge part of our society. We need it. It's instrumental, invaluable. If you leave out certain people, you then in turn really limit creativity and society's ability to solve problems. That's what we can do in the next four years. Our world is not singular. There are so many voices and experiences that deserve to be heard and expressed. Diversity is really the key to life. Without diversity, life becomes stagnant. It acknowledges and values the importance of everyone, which makes us as a country even better. Martin Luther King, he had a dream. It was for everybody to be united. To stand up for freedom together. Without diversity, there's no progress. And that's what black history is. Black history. More than a month. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen of America. AJC Radio is the final destination for you tonight as we deal with the issue of cruel and unusual sentencing and mandatory minimums really corrupting the criminal justice system and creating a huge problem in our prison system today. And right now, as I told you, we were privileged and honored to have Molly Gill. She's from the organization FAM. Uh, Families Against Mandatory Minimums, Director of Federal Legislative Affairs, actually works with federal legislators, affected family members, and other criminal justice stakeholders, if you will, to promote sentences that protect public safety. And uh, 
tonight. We're going to deal with that issue. Great interview, folks. Hang on and sit back and enjoy this interview as she gives some true insight to the problem in our sentencing system in America. Let's hear, let's hear how that interview went. This is AJC Radio, and tonight we are privileged to have Molly Gill, uh, FAM's Director of Federal Legislative Affairs, and uh, I'll tell you what, a great lady doing some things as we address this issue. And Molly, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I appreciate you uh, taking time. We were able to kind of get things together, and I'm so very, very pleased with that. And uh, we're talking today... uh, We're dealing with the issue, of course, of the uh, cruel and unusual punishment in sentencing and that we've had an abuse really in our courts um, that uh, needs to be addressed. And uh, you're definitely the lady to talk to about it with your extensive experience. Um, Tell us a little bit about yourself and our listeners, uh, what the goal is at FAM in dealing with uh, this very important issue because it contributes to, to what we know as mass incarceration um, of course, you got the other side of wrongful convictions. Uh, our system is in a lot of trouble right now. How do we go about fixing that? And I'll give you the floor to talk to our listeners on it. Sure. Uh, Families Against Mandatory Minimums, FAM, um, you can visit our website at www.fam.org. Uh, is 25 years old. Uh, we have been working on a very specific problem in the criminal justice system, which is mandatory minimum sentencing. This is sentencing uh, where the judge is required to give a certain prison term, even if it makes no sense, even if the judge thinks uh, it's not deserved, or these facts are special, or this defendant is special, and we need some other kind of punishment. Uh, so. Uh, Congress uh, created a lot of these sentencing laws in the 1980s, so did a lot of states around the country, and uh, what they've done is basically fill our prisons uh, very quickly with a lot of people who, even though they broke the law and deserve to be punished, don't necessarily need to be in prison for as long as these mandatory sentences require. So we're trying to get rid of those mandatory sentences, give some flexibility back to judges to decide the right punishment in every single case. Well, let me ask you a question on that, Molly. Now, and, and I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit here. Listen, I, I agree that mandatory minimums uh, is a nightmare. Uh, we've had the opportunity to talk to Congressman uh, Scott uh, on the Hill, who was very vocal in a hearing we heard uh, a couple of summers ago in D.C. of the insanity, if you will, of mandatory minimums. And when you say – when you put laws in place that are there uh, – arbit- Whatever for whatever purpose, uh, without any it making any sense, whether it makes sense or not, to me, number one, that's your number one problem. That's the number one problem because then you have a system that becomes robotic uh, in its form, but you're dealing with human lives. You're dealing with case by case situations. Now, you said this gives an opportunity to put the power back into the judge's hands to have discretion. Let me ask you this question. How do we find the balance there when you're dealing with judges at times, if given discretion, abuse their power? Well, that's a great question. And I think the answer is that what mandatory minimum sentences have done is they've taken all the sentencing power away from the judge and put it in the hands of the prosecutor. And the prosecutor is very different than the judge. The prosecutor 
makes all of their decisions in private. Those decisions can't be reviewed. The prosecutors often aren't aren't uh, in the federal system. They're not even elected. And uh, basically what it comes down to now in sentencing is we've turned prosecutors into literal judge, jury, and executioner. A prosecutor sits in an office and they decide, I'm going to charge this person. I'm going to charge them with these uh, charges that carry long mandatory sentences because I don't like this person or because um, of any number of reasons. And uh, then they go to court and the judge looks at this list of charges and there's nothing the judge can do about it to act as a check on the prosecutor. Now, when we take mandatory sentences away, we're giving some of that power back to the judge. The judge can say, I think that this is the correct sentence. And the best system is one where you have uh, a system of guidelines that are flexible, that tell judges, in this kind of case, this is going to normally be the right kind of sentence. And there may be unusual cases where the judge decides to go above or below that sentence. And then that sentence can be appealed by both sides. So if the prosecutor thinks the judge got it wrong, he can appeal. The defendant thinks the judge got it wrong, that he can appeal. And then you let an appellate court sort it out. And the reason that's a preferable system is because judges do everything in public and their decisions can be reviewed on appeal. They have to answer to a higher court. Prosecutors don't have to answer to anybody. So this is really about creating a better sentencing process where there's more accountability and more oversight and more transparency. No, no, no. I agree with that. And that makes sense that if, if, if you if you take – so what you're saying is that if you have a mandatory minimum, the judge's hands are pretty much tied. Therefore, there is no appellate review of it. There is no challenging of it. Uh, but then if you take that power out of the prosecution's hand, if a judge, to my question – uh, abuses his power, uh, there's still an option on the table to get that uh, uh, checked in a check and balance system, if you will, of the appellate process. So that's I think absolutely that, right. Sure, I think that makes a lot of sense. And 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 like you said, the prosecutor, which is so bad because we have abuse in our prosecutions with prosecutors all across this country um, that are on a status quo, if you will, of how many convictions can I get? No seeking for justice in some cases, and I'm not saying all of them. Uh, where prosecutors are bent on uh, without cause, really, uh, to, uh, to to imp- implement th- these mandatory minimums to the, to the level that they're detrimental to a lot of people. Um, now, from what your experience of what you've seen with this, uh, how, how, I guess, how good is the progress going to try to get mandatory minimums? I know it's been discussion uh, on Capitol Hill to get rid of it. How difficult is it to do that, and how far are we in the process of making that happen? Well, I would say that uh, actually the states are uh, winning the leg race with the the feds on this one. The states are way out ahead of the federal government on their sentencing reforms uh, in this area. In the past 10 years, we've had more than 30 states either get rid of their mandatory minimum sentences or create exceptions, uh, which we call safety valves, uh, to those mandatory sentences. And those states have have been great to watch as an an experiment. And what they've shown is that you can reduce your prison population, you can have shorter sentences, and crime can still go down. You don't need, uh, you know, long sentences and, you know, full prisons to have a low crime rate. And these states have been saving money uh, that they were wasting on putting the wrong people in prison for too long. 
And they've been taking that money and investing it in things like treating opioid addiction and testing rape kits that have been left to gather dust on a shelf and trying to close out cold cases and actually getting dangerous people off the streets. So the states have really learned that, that sentencing reform actually makes us safer. Now, the feds are playing catch up. Congress is uh, a lot slower in just about everything. And um, but there has been a really encouraging bipartisan movement in Congress in the last probably five years where uh, you have people like, you know, uh, Speaker of the House Paul Ryan uh, saying, you know, this is mandatory sentences are, are destroying families. They're ripping families apart. They're putting people into generational cycles of poverty. What can we do about that? Um, you've got people like Mike Lee from Utah and Rand Paul from Kentucky saying, you know, these policies cost taxpayers lots and lots of money, and I'm not really sure they're any safer for it. So that's a, a very encouraging trend. You know, we have people on the left like Cory Booker from New Jersey and Dick Durbin from Illinois and Patrick Leahy from Vermont saying, we can take a more humane approach. We can take a smarter approach uh, to, to crime. And we don't need these one-size-fits-all sentences to be safe. So I'm encouraged by what I'm seeing at the federal level. I, I think they have a long way to go. And, you know, we have a new, a new president and a new attorney general who both, uh, I think, are, you know, spouting some misinformation about uh, trying to put America into a place of fear because they want to create new mandatory minimum sentences and, and actually make things worse. No, 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 I agree with that. And, and that's something, again, America is at a crossroad at this point. Uh, given the new administration, the tone of the new administration, just is something that uh, we're hopeful that uh, uh, a logic, a human logic, a human decency of America will outweigh uh, some of the stuff that we've heard. It says here that you actually, so you work with these federal legislators, uh, members of Congress, talking to them uh, in a bipartisan way. We've seen that a little bit in our talks on the Hill as well. Uh, this was really a hot topic a couple of years ago, the mandatory minimums, uh, changing those things. And as you said, it's a bipartisan effort uh, where members of Congress on both sides have come in together because the situation has gotten it to such a level, uh, again, dealing with mass incarceration, uh, dealing with the things that we have to deal with, uh, with, with prisons, uh, which is the worst, in my opinion, system of, of, of uh, punishment, if you will, uh, compared to any other nation on earth. Uh, and our numbers and the statistics actually support that type of belief, in my opinion. Uh, what are we doing as far as going forward? Uh, and like you said, if this is something that works, uh, they've said before, mass incarceration, crazy sentencing, all these things are, are some of the things that contribute to the problem. Uh, and what has motivated the states to move, I would presume financially, they're in a better situation to apply those funds to really pressing issues. As you said, the opiate uh, problem in America right now is huge state by state. Um, so what do you think, how do we get this type of message, I guess, to become a domino effect, if you will, in other states and hopefully pushing the federal government to move a little quicker, given the fact of what we're seeing with people walking out of prison, who have been who sat there 30 years wrongfully convicted all of a sudden well no he wasn't guilty so he's in prison uh and then so you have some of those people that were sentenced under the mandatory minimum laws i believe which were outrageous i mean you have people mm -hmm. sitting in prison for marijuana and cocaine doing um, 30 40 years yeah well i think 
I think one thing about mandatory sentencing that people have not been paying enough attention to is this idea that there's some point at which prison actually just makes people worse. And uh, we're not actually making ourselves safer. We're just handicapping a person who needs to come back and be our neighbor, who needs to know what an iPhone is, who needs to know how to use a tablet, who needs to know what an app is. They don't know any of these things in prison. When you put people in prison for 10, 20, 30 years for these nonviolent crimes, you are really crippling them for return to society in the future. Think about how much technology you'd have missed if you spent the last 10 years in prison. Think about all the things you wouldn't know how to do. And now these people are expected to come home, get a job, reintegrate with their family, find housing, find um, benefits, get, you know, enroll in Obamacare, which they don't even know about because they didn't even, uh, it didn't exist when they went in, you know, so these, these uh, time that makes a difference. Uh, when we are putting people in prison, we are handicapping uh, their own future crime-free life um, if we're keeping them there too long. So I think that uh, another big area where there's a lot of discussion right now is prison reform and the idea of trying to make prison a more productive place for people. And um, it's, a, it's an area that, that Sam is passionate about because we talk to so many people in federal prisons who say, you know, there's no college education in here. There's no meaningful jobs in here. I can't learn any job skills in here. And uh, so we, re we re really need to think about um, prisons and get smart about the way that we're using prisons, ultimately with that end in mind, that all of these people are going to come back and be our neighbors. So do you want a neighbor who can handle technology, who can handle being in society, who's got job skills, who's got an education, who's got some self-worth? Or do you want a neighbor who basically was put on ice for 20 years? Wow. And I'll tell you what, Molly, this is something that, that really – uh, hits me in the heart. I, I don't know if I, I think I share with you, I was wrongfully convicted in this state for seven years. Yes. I'm familiar with your story. It's tragic. Tragic story. And I'm going to tell you, you, to your point, it's not about, and I think you make a good point. Let, let's, let's deal with two issues. The first issue, uh, as far as changing the mindset of prison, uh, how, when people come in, we understand there are people that made mistakes. There are people that made bad decisions. Uh, let's deal with that group first. So our society is built to say, well, punish them. Don't give them anything. Don't worry about the humane side of these individuals because just throw them in prison. We don't, we're not going to worry about after they get out to number one, which is the number one mistake. And I think, no, prison is not a picnic. It is a place of, of penance. It's a place to look at what we've done. Uh, if you're guilty of the crime that you've done, but I don't have to be treated cruel and unusual in that process. The problem is, until President Obama came out and said that solitary confinement was something that was cruel and unusual, and he backed off the institutions from using solitary confinement as a punishment for very uh, petty things that may go on in the, in the, in the penitentiary. Um, how that happens now with President Trump, I have no idea, but I know one thing is for certain. Solitary confinement is a place of inhumane treatment. It is a place of horror and terror. And to your point, there are people that leave solitary confinement that come out that can't even function. So I think, I think our entire system, as far as how we view the prison system, I'll, I'll agree with you that, man, we have to change that. 
Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. What you've been listening to is the interview with Molly Gill, Director of Federal Legislative Affairs with FAM, Families Against Mandatory Minimums, as this organization works to tackle the mass incarceration, but what's happening from the bench in courtrooms all across this country, and then the additional abuse within the federal prison and state uh, prison systems with further punishment and abuse of power and solitary confinement and other types of punishment that simply, William, is unacceptable. And as you hear Molly break these things down, the work she's doing should be commended. Uh, that that organization is setting out to bring attention and work with federal legislators on Capitol Hill to say, look, we do have a problem and we're going to have to fix it. And it is done, being done by, in a bipartisan way. William, your thoughts on some of the insights that Molly gave us on, the, on that first uh, part of that interview? I tell you, it was amazing because really you don't really think about you know, what they're up against. But as she starts to shine light on this, you really see that it puts someone that if they're indicted – it puts them in a hard situation because they'll say, listen, you got a mandatory minimum here, or you could take a plea. And it really favors the prosecution. It doesn't matter if they have a case. It really favors them. And she said it in a segment. It really takes uh, – it favors the prosecution. It kind of yields the judge into a limited role and said, listen, if they're convicted, I have to stick with this mandatory minimum, even if I don't agree with them. And that's, that's where you have a problem. The judge cannot act on his conscience. That's right. He cannot act and say, you know what, I'm going to do something different here. In spite of the bad judges that are out there, and you have plenty, you have good judges. And we're going to hear later on the, other, on, the, on the other side of the show, a judge who went on a crusade, if you will, to end mandatory minimums because he couldn't sleep at night. Because what I've done, and they have forced the hand, whenever you force the hand of the process, where somebody has to act against their own conscience, that's why they tell jur- jurors, vote your conscience. If you take that out of the criminal justice system, whether it's sentencing, whether it's deliberating, you have flawed uh, the entire system, Dennis. Your thoughts on that? And that's true. As, as she was talking, I was thinking about how. Uh, you know, you can't give prosecutors that type of power, you know, because they they benefit from the mandatory, uh, you know, sentencing because they can use that as leverage. I mean, and that's exactly. why we have so many plea plea deals and, you know, overcrowding in our prisons, because, I mean, if I'm told that, you know, there's a possibility I'm getting life uh, for some drugs that I that I had, that, I mean, at a minimum, I mean, I'm going to try to take a plea. And, and so. It's just not right. We really need to look at our laws and say, hey, we need to fix this and make sure, like like uh, Molly was talking about, it needs to be well-rounded. The defense, judges, and prosecutors, everybody need to have a, make, be able to make a decision. Well, ladies and gentlemen of America, grab your notebook because I tell you what, this conversation gets even more interesting now as we go into part two of this interview with Molly Gill, putting some knowledge down. Grab a piece of paper and make some notes, folks, because this is a battle – that we're all going to have to fight. Let's go now to part two of that interview. Because you got to make, if I got to come out, do I come out mentally crushed or damaged from solitary confinement? Molly, I've talked to people who've been in solitary confinement, who were in solitary confinement for 20 years. Mm -hmm. 20 years. Yeah, I mean, there's a, you know, we, we like to talk about, you know, 
oh, it's, you know, programming in prisons, programming in prisons. But there is a certain element of programming after prison because prison can be a traumatic experience. And what we have encountered is that not a lot of people are coming home and getting counseling to just deal with the experience of being locked away. And, you know, it's it's funny because it doesn't take 20 years to get traumatized. I've met people who did 12 months, 18 months, 20 months in federal prison and they come home and you know go back to their lives and their kids are always calling and their iPhones blowing up and their computers beeping with emails and they feel overwhelmed they don't know how to do it they have mini panic attacks sitting at their desks and that's after spending just a year or two in prison now imagine spending five or ten or twenty years in prison which are common lengths of these mandatory minimum drug sentences so I think that we have uh, you know forgotten uh, time in this country as well. We hear two years and think, oh, he got it off. He got off easy. No. Well, two years can be enough to disrupt your lives, the lives of your kids, your career, your future employability. Um, you know, we've, we hear five years and we don't even blink in this country anymore. So, uh, you know, Sam is, is not an advocate necessarily for shorter sentences, just sentences that fit and, Rethinking the concept that 20 years, 15 years, 10 years is going to fit a lot of the people that we're giving them to is, I think, a very important thing that we're not doing in this country, except at the state level where they have budget realities. They have to balance their budgets at the end of the year. They can't just go print more money or borrow more money from China. You know, They have to make their budgets work. And what they're realizing is that they would rather build schools and hospitals and roads than more prisons. So they're no, figuring out who really needs to be in prison. No, no, I think that's a good point. Molly, what, what does FAM do? Have you guys done any investigating, uh, investigations rather, into white-collar uh, sentencing, which now, at least in the last couple of years, there was a just cause has noticed uh, definitely uh, dealing with the case of the IRP-6, and, I, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, the six IT professionals that were, that were wrongfully convicted got outrageous sentences, seven to 11 years, yeah. no, no previous record. Are you guys going to, at least maybe in the future, or have you guys started looking into uh, the white collar crimes and some of those sentences, definitely not a threat to society, definitely questionable convictions in the system, whether they were even merited. Uh, what are you folks doing to look, or are you doing anything looking into the abuse, even with those not necessarily drug offenses that are outrageous, but white collar crimes as well. Sure. Well, fortunately, so far anyway, there hasn't been much of an effort to create mandatory minimum sentences for a lot of white collar offenses. And I'm not entirely sure why that is. It, it might just be a, a recognition that the cases are so complicated. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, so we haven't had to fight mandatory minimum sentences for white collar offenses, but the, the federal sentencing guidelines and a lot of white collar crimes do become federal crimes and get taken into federal courts. Uh, the sentencing guidelines that apply to those crimes can um, sort of uh, have the effect of ballooning sentences very, very quickly. Um, you know, so you might have a, a crime like, you know, identity theft, and then you get you know, an extra 12 months because you used a computer. Well, chances are almost every identity theft case these days involves a computer. So is that extra 12 months really saying something significant about the nature of the crime being worse than a normal 
aggravate, I mean, what's a normal aggravated identity theft crime, you know? So, um, you know, we saw that sort of these, these sentences were just kind of extrapolating and extrapolating. And then before you know it, you've, you've got this really, really long sentence for a secretary. And you're thinking, wait a minute, does that make sense? Is, is she really a, a threat to the public? Is she going to be violent? Does she need to be in prison that long? Would half as much time do? And so we have worked a little bit with um, trying to explain some of those problems to the Sentencing Commission, trying to get them to, uh, you know, take a better look at those um, uh, white collar cases. Um, you know, there's a lot of similarities between white collar cases and drug cases, actually. Drug cases are based almost entirely on the amount of uh, drugs involved. And so the idea is the more drugs, the longer the sentence. But you uh, also, uh, you can be held accountable for drugs that you never saw, uh, that other people were selling that you didn't know about. Uh, and so before you know it, you, you might have sold an ounce of drugs, but now you're being held accountable for selling a pound because everyone else you were uh, involved in this conspiracy with sold that much drugs. And so you get a much, much longer sentence. It's this exact same concept happens in white collar cases where you've got a, a secretary who might have been paid a very small sum for uh, sending a, a fraudulent fax or something. And then, and, you know, then her boss is the one who actually makes the bulk of the money. And yet she is held accountable for all the money that her boss uh, stole too. And so you see some inequity there that the boss is getting the bigger profit, but she's lumped in with everyone else. Um, it's really the same concept behind mandatory minimums is just treating everybody the same. The conspiracy rules do that in the white collar context and they do it in the drug context. And we need to move away from that. We need to sentence people for what they did, what they knew about, what they can be properly held accountable for. And uh, it's really not fair to, to punish people for, for more. No, it's really not. And, and, I think you make a good point, Molly, on the fact that people tend to think a number uh, is what demonstrates justice in these crimes. And say, for instance, you take a young lady, I'll, I'll give an example, uh, Lawana Clark, uh, who is related to uh, or knows uh, quite a few uh, of the IRP6 uh, guys, uh, basically most of her life, uh, sitting as a church counselor. Now, this is the point I want to make to you, and, I, and I'm in agreement with what you said as far as people think two years is just a slap on the wrist because they know nothing about being on the inside. That's why they think that. Uh, Luana Clark, um, very uh, 50, 50, 52, 53 years old, uh, goes to a federal prison for six months for a perjury charge that was ridiculous, uh, which most people never go to prison on a perjury charge in most cases. Uh, now, this is a woman who's basically in a sheltered life, a church counselor, a mother, pastor, uh, Rose Banks. Uh, so all she's known is really church, um, married to her husband uh, for over 20 years. Um, so what you have here, six months to her is a lifetime. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? If I'm in jail Six months for is enough to lose your parental rights. Absolutely. Permanently so in some states. No, 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 absolutely. So you got this lady here, and I think, and, and how do, I guess the question, how do we get people from thinking, and judges thinking, well, this is, this is just six months, but you don't understand. For the person who has, the, when they first entered the, the traumatic experience of going into a penitentiary, as a 50-year-old woman, no previous criminal record, never being in that situation, never being arrested in her life, 
goes into this federal prison out of the state in which she lives. Do you understand the trauma of that alone? The first couple of days. Right. I mean, we, we really in the federal system in particular, the feds are just not innovative. I know that's a huge shock to those listening, but um, the, the federal government just is not much of an innovator. Uh, so, you know, we basically use prison for everything if you're convicted of a federal crime. Uh, the alternatives, there are other alternatives to prison. You can put people in home confinement, put them on a ankle bracelet with a GPS monitor so you know where they are and, and keep them at home and monitor them there. You can put them on probation with a probation officer they have to check in with once a day or twice a week or, um, you know, who's, who's monitoring them, making sure they're not breaking the law again. You can um, a lot of times what people need is they need drug and mental health treatment. That's why they got into this situation in the first place is they got addicted to drugs or gambling or, you know, had some kind of trauma. They didn't get proper treatment. And before you know it, they're doing things they shouldn't be doing to support those addictions, those issues in their lives. And so you can put people in drug courts, mental health courts, where they have supervision, where they're connected with treatment, where they're put on a plan that will lead them to sobriety. Those, those courts are very, very effective, and yet they basically don't exist in the federal system. So the federal system is still really relying on prison as the solution to everything. And uh, sometimes it's, it's actually not a solution. Sometimes it just actually makes people worse. The states can be much more innovative. They have to be financially. Uh, so the, the states are you know, using all of those tools that I mentioned. Oh no, no, absolutely, Molly, and and I think I think your point is really a good point, and I think I think our system needs just a complete overhaul. Um, let me ask you a question. Going into what you've done, it looks like you've done, uh, it looks like uh, you've appeared as an expert on mandatory minimum sentences, sentencing law, and executive clemency issues uh, on on some major networks, CNN, NPR, Al Jazeera, NBC. Uh, let me ask you a question about that. The the, the latter part of that uh, statement. As far as executive clemency issues, uh, there's been a lot of talk that the clemency process is so flawed uh, right now. Uh, it caused uh, former pardon attorney uh, left to actually step down. And her statements were that uh, she was blocked from getting the president's agenda on exactly what, what those clemency issues were. It's been to the point where President Obama has had to clean house twice at the Department of Justice in that process because of bias against African-American and minority applications for clemency. Your experience in addressing these issues, to me, the system is very broken, that if I apply for clemency uh, and the pardon attorney just simply feels like, you know what, I don't really want to bother with this, well, the president never gets an opportunity to see it. So it's not the president's decision because he's depending on the pardon attorney to bring things to him. However, uh, pardon attorney left, resigned after a year and said it was so biased. What, what, are, you, what are you saying in that, in that arena, dealing with executive clemency, and how bad is that system also affecting uh, getting folks out of prison as well? Well, I think over, over the years, the federal clemency process has been bogged down in bureaucracy. They've had some problematic leadership, leaders that have had to resign um, and uh, Deborah Leff was not one of them. Um, and, and I think there's been just some confusion. In the, in the final years of the Obama administration, uh, President Obama created what he called Clemency Project 2014. And the idea was to 
uh, sort of uh, create a more streamlined way to get um, clemency applications through the system and to the White House so the president could see them. And he was very bold. He said, you know, I want to grant a lot of commutations. And to be fair to President Obama and to the process, he did grant more commutations than any president in modern history. Um, and I think more than the last 12 combined, I think he finished by granting more than 1,700 commutations uh, redu sentence reductions to federal prisoners, which was a, an amazing accomplishment. Um, a lot of those people were serving life sentences. They were going to die in prison. Almost everyone had already served at least a decade in prison. Uh, so they had already done plenty of time. And uh, some people uh, will still do more time. Some Sometimes the president just said, you had a 30-year sentence. Now you're going to do 20. The person has five years left. So they're they're still in prison, but they will get out much sooner. And so uh, the president focused on drug offenders. He focused on the really, really long sentences. Um, and in, um, you know, it was still a lengthy bureaucratic review process. And at the end of the day, there were still some arbitrary results. Why did that person get clemency and, and that person didn't? And there's a certain element of this system that is lottery-like. And it's, it's I, I'm not sure what the solution is to take that away from from the clemency process. I think now though, we're entering a different world. We have Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who is very critical of the Obama clemencies, um, who is notoriously tough on crime, likes mandatory minimums, likes long sentences, and he's running the Justice Department now. So I think we may uh, see a very different approach to clemency than we saw in the last eight years. And I can tell you this, the day after uh, President Trump got elected, there were a lot of federal prisoners who wrote to me and said, uh, there are a lot of sad, long faces in here today because we don't think the new president is going to listen to our pleas for mercy the way that the old president did. And I guess time will tell uh, if, they're, if they're right or if they're wrong. There you have it, uh, part two of the interview with Molly Gill. Uh, Cliff, your thoughts on her position? I mean, she is very clear and direct in what she is talking about. And again, Molly Gill from FAM, Families Against Mandatory Minimums. As we get into dialogue in this interview of the real problems that America faces in our criminal justice system, uh, she's bringing some insight to it that is just no nonsense and telling it really like it is and the challenges we face. Your thoughts on that, Cliff? Yeah, I mean, she really has a great handle on on uh, what the problem is. Um, you know, she, as well as other members, other members of FAM, realize that uh, the prosecutors getting you know full control basically of the of the sentencing uh, guidelines and the sentencing process. That is where the problem lies. You take away. Uh, any control of that from the judge, you know, the judge is supposed to be there to say, okay, I weighed the entire case. I weighed who this person is, um, you know, what crime they committed, how they committed that crime. And then the judge should be able to judge all of that. And in essence, give them the sentence that, um, that a judge should hand down. Now you have the prosecutors who are just saying, no, we want the mandatory minimum. The longer I can get a person locked up, the, uh, the better it looks for my career field. And that is not the way that you deal with human life. That's not 
human life is not a uh, you know a, a etch in your belt as a prosecutor, but that is how it is it is treated. And uh, and she with the rest of fam realizes that that's where the problem lies, and that's where the that's where the fight must be taken to. No, oh, absolutely. And ladies and gentlemen, on the other side of the break, stand up, stretch your legs, go grab a beverage out the refrigerator. Before long, it'll be lemonade or uh, whatever you call it, a nice iced cappuccino. As we are coming up on spring here in March, and I'll tell you what, grab something. We're coming back with the final part three of the interview with Molly Gill from FAM, Families Against Mandatory Minimums. We'll be right back. History is important because it shows where you're coming from and where you're going. Type 2 diabetes is something that runs in my family, which means I'm at risk. In fact, one in three American adults are at risk for developing type 2 diabetes. And knowing this, if I do nothing, that family history becomes my family's future. And my family is too important to me for that. Take the risk factor assessment today at AskGreenNo.com. Black History Month is huge. It's a way for us to reconnect with our history. Continue to celebrate and acknowledge the immense amount of contributions that black people have made. Black History Month is a celebration of culture. Another opportunity for everyone to remember that we're all human. And to have a month that reminds people that black history is American history. More than just having names and numbers and dates that are in a book. To remember how important it is to be black. I think that the important Black History Month is that if you don't know where you came from, you're not going to be prepared for where you're going. We all stand on the shoulders of somebody else. If I stand tall, it's because I'm standing on the shoulders of those who came before me. Black History. More than a month. And welcome back in, ladies and gentlemen of America. This is AJC Radio. Tonight, very fortunate and informative information regarding cruel and unusual punish, uh, really cruel and unusual treatment, rather, in the sentencing process in America's courts. And we've been privileged to have uh, Molly Gale from FAM, Director of Federal Legislative Affairs, working with members of Congress to bring an end not only to the outrageous sentencing that's going on by, from the bench of many judges in this country, uh, but it's, it's having a huge impact on the prison system. And we're talking about mass incarceration. We're talking about the treatment of, of, of uh, inmates. Uh, we're talking about the treatment of, of people that are fighting for their lives in our courts. And where the abuse has gotten at such a level uh, with the prosecution, uh, the government, uh, those on the other side of the aisle versus the defense attorneys, it's really become an unfair situation and definitely some acts of leverage that are going on in our courtroom. We're going to finish this up, this, finish up this interview as we get ready at the top of the hour to bring on Melissa Hamilton. She'll be joining us live uh, for that segment. But we're going to finish the last part of this interview with Molly. Folks, I tell you, it's information that makes you really stop and think. But FAM is doing some things to make these things happen. And I tell you what, they're taking steps to say, look, bring the awareness to the American people and to the legislators, those that we elect in office, to say, look, we have to stop and take a look. Apparently, it's happening a little bit more frequent, and it has a bipartisan ring to it. Let's go to part three of that interview as we finish up that interview with Molly Gill. Well, and that's a, that's a tragedy, um, uh, in my opinion. 
because you're dealing with an administration that has been out of the pocket um, from day one. Uh, and there are things that, and I believe that's why you have marches all over this country right now. Uh, the criminal justice system uh, is broken. Uh, President Trump has at least appeared to take the position uh, with, the, with law enforcement, and that's okay to a point, but you can't disregard the other side as far as the abuse of law enforcement uh, and lives that have been critically and horrifically um, damaged as a result, whether you're dealing with police shootings with African-Americans or Latinos or whether they're white Americans, uh, just insane actions that have cost a lot of lives. And I understand the position of these inmates that we're very sad today because at least President Obama did one thing. He went down into the trenches of solitary confinement and said, that's me. Some of these people, he said, you know what he said? He said, these people are Americans. Some people made mm-hmm. mistakes. And this used to be a country of redemption. Uh, and we've, I believe we've gotten away from that, which is really, really tragic. And uh, uh, I think your insight on it, Molly, brings a lot of, at least to me, uh, it, it gives you a lot of clarity of and it's not necessarily a good clarity <laughs> i mean it's a clarity of <laughs> what it is <laughs> but uh we have to work through it and i think the work that you're doing uh is, is phenomenal uh trying to find some solutions some answers and being really down in this and look this is something that's not going away this is something that's going to be a problem uh in this country until we decide to look at these things face on and that's something we definitely have to do Um, Well, can I even go one step further than that? And I'll say this, that I think people need to be very careful about what they're hearing coming out of this administration right now. Uh, Mm -hmm. Last week, you know, Jeff Sessions became our attorney general at that press conference. Both the president and the attorney general said, uh, you know, crime is the worst it's ever been. We're on a permanent upward trend for murders. That is not true. We are actually safer now than we have been for the last 40 years. Um, murders are low, the lowest they've been since 1991 in this country. So why, why this misinformation? Why just taking these statistics and, and frankly, not telling the truth? Um, I think that it is uh, pointing to where uh, the new president and the new attorney general want to go, which is they want to create more mandatory sentences. They want to put more people in prison for longer, even if they don't need to be there. And that is a problem that is going to make us less safe. That means that we can't spend that money on things that do make us safe. It means that we are going to destroy more families. We're going to take more parents out of the home. We're going to create more fatherless children. It means that there's going to be more racial disparity. So they want to, in a way, it sounds like they're they're prepping us for where they're going, which is a repeat of the 1980s. And we've tried that and it failed. We locked everyone up as long as we could for 30 years in this country, and it costs us a lot of money. We have a heroin epidemic, so much for those mandatory minimum drug laws working. So I think we need to be prepared when you, know, when you hear those statistics, number one, don't just accept them. Go Google it and fact check it, and, and don't get scared. Get smart and really pay attention to what this uh, administration wants to do on criminal justice because – it's not anything good. We've done it before, and it didn't work. Well, and, and, and I think to your point, Molly, it's not working. And if, if in any way, when you give a statement that, and this has been all over media anyway, 
that when you make a statement that uh, we have the worst crime rate in this country with murders in the last 40 years, and factually it has been fact-checked and, and uh, not uh, supported, uh, you put fear in the hearts of America. Uh, and I think that's a good point. And then if it is to set the stage that we're going to lock these people up, we already are, are really drowning in the criminal justice system as far as mass incarceration. And if you have an but we're already number one in the world. Yeah, you can't go, do we want to be super number one? I, <laughs> that's at what point do we just say enough? Yeah, no, I agree with you. And uh, I think the point is, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the point that Ms. Gill is making today, uh, we're in a crisis in this country. And it's not just criminal justice. It's in every facet of our government. And you, what I've learned through this process is the importance and the danger on the other side of transition of power. And I know in America they talk about, you know, we've always been a, a country of transition of power, a peaceful transition of power. But I'm going to tell you what. There's thousands of people marching on the streets of America everywhere. Not only that, Molly, they're marching in other countries in regards to this administration and the positions it's taken on issues. So this is unprecedented. It has never happened in the history of this country on this level. And I think that's why people are they're concerned. I don't know if you heard the statement, uh, and I'm just bringing this up because it makes sense. Uh, when uh, President Trump uh, chimed in on uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, not being able uh, to get the ratings on The Apprentice, and uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger came back and said, well, let's do this. Let's switch jobs. And you do my job since you know TV. I'll do your job, and we'll let the American people be able to go to sleep at night again. That, that was his response to it. So I, I, well, think, I think – go ahead. Well, well, I think what's sad is that if President Trump wanted to have a, a quick bipartisan win – um, where you know the Congress actually does some governing, and you pass something that everybody can be proud of. Criminal justice reform is at the top of that very short list of things that have bipartisan support. Um, you know, the bill was all teed up last year and ready to go, and uh, the reforms in that bill uh, were very modest. Actually, um, it didn't go as far as Sam would like. Sam would have liked to see. The bill include more, but it had bipartisan support, um, enormous support from from all across the spectrum. And um, you know, it's a, it's a if if President Trump wanted to you know do something that the country could be proud of, that everybody could feel like they had a stake in. Bipartisan, bipartisan criminal justice reform is that thing, and. So it, it sounds so far like that's that's not the route he wants to take, and that's a real shame. And the real losers there are are going to be the American taxpayers. No, absolutely, Molly. I agree with you. And I think that, like I said, you got celebrities chiming in on this administration, as the former governor of California did. You got everybody chiming in because, you know what, I'm going to just say what it is. The American people are nervous. They're uneasy because they don't know what the next thing is going that's coming. And uh but I think what you're doing, and I'm going to give you an opportunity, Molly, to give some closing remarks. I don't want to hold you any longer. I know you've given us a little over the time we had talked about, but I do appreciate your. Well, there you have it, folks. Uh, we're up against the clock. 
uh, on that interview. Go to AJCRadio.com. You can hear this show in its entirety. Uh, and I'll tell you what, uh, Dennis, when you hear Molly again, the passion of this young lady that is calling people out for the lack thereof, if you will, of what needs to happen in this country in our criminal justice system is refreshing. And that's what I call a true advocate trying to make a true difference. And I think she's doing that. And she is. She's doing that. A great job at it. Uh, making sure that people understand that, hey, we got to get out there, uh, fact check, look at what's going on. Because right now, our justice system, I mean, is broken. And, uh, we, you know, we do have, diff- you know, the Republicans, Democrats, and independents working together to try to fix it. But uh, if, we, if we go back and we turn back the clock, uh, we're going to go back to the 1980s again. And then, uh, of course, it's going to get worse and worse. Well, folks, hang on to your seats. Uh, we're coming back now. On the other side of this break with Melissa Hamilton, I'll tell you what, she's a great lady doing some great things and will speak in, chime in rather, on this conversation dealing with the criminal justice system, the sentencing issues that we face uh, in this country. Folks, we'll be right back. This is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. We'll be right back. She's coined a new term for the times we're living in. Brace for it, Parents of America. Alternative facts. Alternative facts. Well, oh, what? Alternative facts? Lies. We think. Also known as stereotypes or false narratives. It's like saying black history began with slavery. That's offensive. Or that we'll never see another black president in our lifetime. What about me? This Black History Month, we're focusing on the facts, not on that fact. Indisputable. Truth. Real. Black magic is real. Black boy joy is real. Black wealth is real. Black beauty is real. Black support is real. Black excellence is real. It's real. Black love, that's real. Black lives are real. I'm real. Black history didn't begin with slavery, and it doesn't end with the Obamas. Whom we love and miss. No, like, really, we really miss you. Facts. Look, right now, uh, while you're looking at this on your screen in your hand or on your computer, there's somebody just like you who's sitting in a prison cell. And they didn't do much more than you did, you know, some crazy weekend. You didn't get caught. They got caught. And they can never get uncaught. The United States of America is now the number one incarcerator of human beings in the world, in the history of the world. Uh, We have about 5% of the world's population. We have 25% of the world's prisoners. Um, We are, we have more people locked up than China. China, who has a billion people, they got fewer prisoners than we do. You know, a lot of times people say, well, if you don't want to do the time, don't do the crime. Really? Have, Have you ever committed a crime? You got people who are doing more drugs in on college campuses, in uh, uh, yacht clubs, country clubs. We all know that's going on, but the SWAT team never shows up there. The SWAT team shows up in the housing projects where you got poorer people doing fewer drugs, and those people go to prison. But think about it. What if one of the times when you were breaking the law, when you had something illegal in your pocket, in your car, at your party, the police had kicked in those doors, would you want to be known for the rest of your life? based on what happened that night? 
That is what is happening to millions of people. If rich folks' kids get in trouble, they go to rehab. Poor folks' kids get in trouble, they go to prison. And you spend $100,000 per year per kid to lock a kid up. When you could have spent a fraction of that and turned them into a NASA scientist, turned them into a, a fashion icon. When people come home from prison, they're not given the opportunity to start over. You leave a physical prison and you go into a social prison where you can't get a job, you can't get a student loan, you can't rent an, rent an apartment. How are people supposed to start over? And what happens to neighborhoods when you take a disproportionate number of people out for minor offenses and you send them back home with no hope and no opportunity? There are no more excuses to have this horrible system continue when there is now finally bipartisan agreement that it is a tragedy to do this. Not only do you have President Obama and the Democrats, you now actually have uh, people like Paul Ryan, Koch Industries, Newt Gingrich, all saying the same thing. We are locking up too many people. We're wasting too much money. We're, we're wasting too much genius in America, and it's time to do something. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen of America. This is AJC Radio. Well, we're talking tonight in regards to the sentencing problem in this country. Uh, one point definitely that has been uh, definitely focused on tonight with Molly Gill, Director of Federal Legislative Affairs for FAM, Families Against Mandatory Minimums, has been the abuse, really, and the power being taken out of the hands of judges and the prosecutors it's like our entire criminal justice system leans towards really pampering, if you will, and leaning towards always going towards the prosecution, which really honestly makes the entire due process argument uh, a very big one, that it is supposed to be fair and across the board. And I think the conversation, William, tonight has been really outstanding uh, in regards to that. We're going we're gonna to get to that. Your thoughts on, on where, where this show has gone and really educating America on the tragedy it, of it, our criminal justice system right it's now. It's incredible. I mean, what she shared with us was truly eye-opening. Because, I mean, she got to the point, she said, we're already number one. Do we want to be super? Do, do we want to be super number one? I mean, we, we are putting people in prison at just this crazy right. rate. Yep. And she's saying, are we going to go back to the 80s? Are we, we're not dealing with the drug, you know, and rehabilitation, we're, all these things. We're just fast-tracking people from conviction to prison and our indictment. Let me say it that there way. There you In, go. Indictment to prison. And, and, I mean, it was really a revelation when you talk about, you know, you're putting up somebody up against mandatory minimums and a plea bargain because you're basically going to – you say take, take the lesser of the two because, you're, you're, you know, to get out innocent – it's not uh, not a not on your side, you know. No, no, absolutely. And right now we're going to turn the page, and we are so honored tonight to have Melissa Hamilton uh, join us uh, in this in this discussion. And uh, Melissa is is a visiting criminal law scholar at the University of Houston Law Center. Uh, Dr. Hamilton is lawyer and has a doctorate in criminology. Her research focuses on the theory and statistics of criminal punishment, and she is a former police officer and corrections officer. And, Melissa, we are honored to have you tonight. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your evening uh, to get into this discussion. Well, thank you. I'm very happy to participate in what is such an important subject. 
and we appreciate that. Melissa, I'm going to give you the floor. Our listeners have been really spoiled the last hour uh, in conversation with, uh, with Molly Gill. In this discussion and the insight that, uh, that she was able to bring, and I have no doubt you will bring that same insight uh, and, and will be very intriguing to our listeners. So why don't you introduce, introduce yourself rather to our listeners and tell us how you got involved with this and what challenges do you see uh, the country facing right now on this very important topic? Yeah, so one of the things you mentioned is I'm a former police officer and corrections officer, and so your listeners may be wondering, you know, what do I have to add to the debate in terms of um, our country being, you know, a country that's known, unfortunately, for mass incarceration. And one of the reasons for that is um, I enjoyed my stint as a police officer and corrections officer, um, but then after practicing as a lawyer uh, for a while in – uh, computer software is I decided I wanted to go into criminal justice policy. And one of the things I thought is as a trained um, police officer and corrections officer, I had preconceived notions of what our crime policy ought to be. For example, lock them all up and the death penalty works and such. But I thought before becoming part of the policy, I should actually um, get an education to challenge that. And that's how I got a doctorate in criminology. And of course, all my preconceived notions basically were upended uh, when I actually revisited the research. Um, one of the things that your prior guest had indicated was we ignore the facts. And so one of the things also I try to do in my uh, research and publication is to use statistics to get to those facts, which she was indicating is that, for example, the public believes one thing and the politicians say one thing, but actually the statistics are contrary to that. No, absolutely. And, 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 and Melissa, and I think you make a good point. I think a lot of people have that mindset until they really get involved with what's going on. You know, we're, we're all for punishment. We're for the death penalty. We're for this and that because it just shouldn't be that way. And I said earlier in the, in the, in the show tonight, uh, a lot of people speak from an area that they're just simply not familiar with when it comes to penitentiary, to the prison system, to being locked up, uh, and the stuff that is going on that is so corrupt that is causing us to focus, I believe, as a society. Uh, again, people have preconceived notions. Uh, those preconceived notions can only be challenged by us having conversations uh, like we're having right now. Tell us a little bit about, since you got in this conversation, uh, what, what are the most critical challenges that we face to turn the page and to really get on track as a criminal justice system uh, to make to right the ship, if you will? How do we do that, and what are the steps we have to take? Well, I think there's two perspectives. One is that we are, be being in the U.S., so contrary to almost everyone in the world in how we deal with crime and um, our emphasis on incarceration. Uh, we had not always been this way. Um, we have diverged in the last 30 years from most of the world um, and, you know, developed countries, Europe and what have you. So that to the extent that the public here thinks that this is all normal, it's not normal to other countries. And they actually, um, the use of the term mass incarceration is not a good term, that they, you know, it's, the connotation is not good at all. I know we like to, and particularly now after the Trump election, like to say America is number one, but I'm not sure that um, the number one incarceration rate is something we should be proud of. But the other thing is that um, where we should move to is um, what uh, what it's called is evidence-based practices, and that is 
that there are a lot of very good academics and other researchers that are showing, for example, what works in terms of rehabilitation. And so it's the criminal justice system, which unfortunately a lot of those officials and a lot of the politicians uh, like to use hype um, to scare the American public. But the fact is that there are things we can do to reduce crime rates and make people feel and actually be more safe um, in America. No, 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 I agree with you totally on that, Melissa. And I think, again, and give me your thoughts on this. Um, we have a administration right now, as we were in discussion earlier, and Molly made a good point. She said the day that uh, this administration uh, was put in office, that it was a sad day as they heard from inmates around the country that they were nervous and uneasy because they felt the same care, at least that was pointed in the right direction. Uh, with some of the steps President, uh, former President Obama made, uh, being, the, I believe, the first president to ever go down to solitary confinement in a federal prison and talk to inmates and have discussions and, and come back and make the statement, you know what, these are Americans. Yes, some of them made some bad choices. That, that's evident. But when, as a society, do we say redemption is not something that's an option? Um, As you said, this hasn't always been the protocol, if you will, of our criminal justice system, was to simply destroy people, to warehouse people. And talking about a lack of programs within the system, um, I'll tell you what, this this can be very discouraging if you have a loved one behind the wall of where are we going from here? Because at least in my opinion, seeing the steps that President Obama had taken, I believe we were headed in a right direction. What are your thoughts on that? And how do we give a sense of optimism to our listeners and those that are really battling this, these tough questions? Well, so some of it is um, a base, basic theoretical difference. And where we diverge from our European neighbors as well as Canadian neighbors just up north is the idea of most of their criminal justice systems are reintegrationist. And what that means is basically, yes, uh, the offender did something wrong and you can shame him, but also believe that that he or she is a human person who belongs in society and we want to bring them back into society basically as soon as possible Um, and um, to foster them becoming law-abiding citizens. But in mm-hmm. opposition to that, America about 30 years ago went into what I call an exclusionist system or uh, philosophy, and that was basically to want to house them in prisons outside society, i.e. exclude them, which is the underlying notion of exclusionist. Um, and that's, so that's a very different philosophy than others. Um, But one of the ways that rhetorically that some of the politicians as well as officials do that, meaning be able to justify excluding a human being, is they dehumanize them. So, for example, um, a lot of the rhetoric that uh, prosecutors and then some of the more strict judges will use against offenders is basically to describe them in ways that make them like animals or just less than human. Um, and so that's part of kind of the philosophy I, I've written about and hope, you know, will change, which is, as you indicated, these are human beings. They have families. They can rehabilitate themselves. And unfortunately now, um, mostly a lot of criminal justice officials and, again, politicians 
um, tend to ignore the rehabilitative aspect of human beings. These are humans. No, absolutely. And, uh, William, I think uh, you had a question uh, for Melissa. Yes, Melissa. I was just curious with all the studies that you've, you've done, how do you think the privatized prisons figure into this? I mean, because it seems like, you know, they're, they're, they're filling them up to make a quota. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah. So privatization has not improved things whatsoever because the private companies have a profit motive. They're not incentive generally under these contracts with states or the feds to increase the rehabilitation rate or even necessarily to study it or to put a lot of money into rehabilitation programs. Um, so the uh, privatization effort is, again, towards just housing these people as if they were animals um, instead of encouraging them, providing education, providing job skills, providing um, the ability to connect with family and friends, which we know from recidivism research is a, a really strong component to rehabilitation because having to social and human contacts and having opportunities in the future. And so the privatization, as you mentioned, unfortunately is not incented to do any of that. No, oh, and then that's a good point, uh, Melissa. And this is one thing that I think is very dangerous. I'll get your thoughts on this. Uh, we're going to play a clip for you. I want you to hear something. Uh, in regards to a a story regarding the disparities in sentencing, and I want to get your thoughts on the other side of this uh, this clip. Let's see what he has to say. Okay. In spring of 1998, Karen Garrison's twin sons were top students about to graduate from Howard University. They had dreams of going to law school, but that all changed. The one guy, the informant, claimed that they were at the garage like for 10 weeks doing drug transactions. The man that worked on their car was indicted for cocaine and crack distribution. He told authorities the garrisons were involved in the conspiracy. His sentence was reduced. I think he did like uh, uh, 11 months or something like that. But I know when they were going in, a few months later, the investigator told me he was coming, that guy was coming home. That 11 months pales in comparison to what the twins faced, 15 and a half years for Lawrence and 19 and a half years for Lamont. They were charged with conspiracy, not possession. Neither men had prior crimes on their record and there was no other evidence against them. To this day, they say they were never involved with the drugs. They were sentenced under mandatory minimum laws. Critics of such sentencing say a one-size-fits-all approach means oftentimes the punishment doesn't fit the crime. Mandatory sentences are made by legislators, whether it's members of Congress or state legislators, and they've never laid eyes on you. They have no idea what you've done. They have no idea how deeply involved you were. The origin of mandatory minimum sentences can be traced to 1986, when major laws in the war on drugs were passed. President Ronald Reagan touted the Anti-Drug Abuse Act as a way to clean up the streets at a time that crack and cocaine abuse was running rampant. 37 federal agencies are working together in a vigorous national effort. And by next year, our spending for drug law enforcement will have more than tripled from its 1981 levels. Decades later, the war on drugs rages on, with many saying it's done more harm than good. As a country, I mean, we are paying for so many people to be on welfare that 
used to be supported by the person who's now in prison. So there's this sort of ripple effect that costs us not only to incarcerate the person, but then to take care of the family that's left behind. Strict drug sentencing for mostly minor offenses floods U.S. jails. A disproportionate amount of those that land behind bars are minorities. I never noticed that difference in white and black until you start in the criminal justice system and they don't care and it's what they do. If stiffer mandatory sentences don't work, what's the alternative? Advocates for reform say it's time to get rid of them because judges are in a better position to decide on fair sentences than Congress. Well, there you have it. Um, you know, speaking to that, uh, Melissa, when you hear that type of disparity, uh, and we already know there's a problem, but when you hear these are actual people, as we've just been talking about, that are suffering as a, re- suffering as a result of this type of system. Your thoughts when you hear something that troubling, uh, how, how do we deal with that? And then how do we address it? Well, there are two things um, that uh, my initial reactions are to that clip. One is our system ignores um, consistent research on what's called aging out, meaning that most um, property and violent crimes are done by young people, generally between 17 and 20, depending on the type of crime. But they age out, and the reason they age out is because they become more mature, um, and aging out means basically they stop offending um, as they get older. They, um, to the extent that they have families and, and jobs and other commitments, then they're not as incentive to commit crimes. And so one of your first stories there was of young people who were sentenced to a long period of time is that's kind of unnecessary uh, because they probably would have aged out. They would have become that more mature person. Uh, the other thing about mandatory minimums in that particular clip is Uh, The purpose for mandatory minimums from a theoretical perspective, it's what's called general deterrence, and that is to to make a stand to say, if you commit this crime, you're going to be sentenced to suggest the mandatory minimum is five years or ten years for this crime. But for um, general deterrence to work, to deter people because they are thinking about that potential sentence, means or you know one of the underlying principles is they have to understand they might be sentenced to that particularly long term and unfortunately our sentencing laws are so complicated that most defenders don't know even know that so they can't be deterred by mandatory minimums to the extent that they're not even aware that they exist Um, but the other aspect of it um, too is you're getting at is not only does a sentence affect the life of the individual offender it affects their families, their friends, even their communities in often very negative ways. So, for example, in some uh, inner cities, by um, what we've seen, for example, in the 1990s and since and such in the drug war, is that sentencing a lot of, for example, minority young men to long periods is you're now taking out from that society a lot of people who otherwise would be contributing to their families and to their communities in very beneficial ways. And so part of the story is it's not just about these individuals who make mistakes and sometimes, yeah, many times it's intentional. So I'm not saying they're all uh, necessarily innocent mistakes is it has additional consequences. Sure. No, I agree with that. Dennis. Hey, Melissa, my name is Dennis Merritt. I have a question. Uh, It's in reference to, 
the presumption of innocence. Uh, do it look? Does it do? Have you done any studies in reference to whether or not uh, are we really truly going to you are guilty until proven innocent? Uh, hopefully not, um, but I'm saying that partly as, you know, a trained lawyer and part of our fundamental principles are um, innocent until proven guilty. Uh, but there is one uh, aspect I'm thinking of that seems to indicate that direction, and that is the growing number of crimes that don't require proof of intent. And what I, that means is that uh, there's a growing number of crimes where the individual um, who mistakenly does something or doesn't intend to commit the particular crime can be found guilty. The reason that some states and more, more particularly the federal government has been passing these kind of crimes is because it makes it easier to prosecute. So to that extent, um, you know, that would seem to foster the idea of, you know, guilty until proven isn't because the person could innocently, or meaning in their mind, not even know they're committing a criminal offense. In other words, they're otherwise a very law-abiding person. It's just that they made a mistake. It happens to violate some arcane statute. Sure. And, Melissa, that's, that's definitely the truth. And the problem, I think, in the Dennis's point in question is these – the way the system is set up when we're talking about sentencing, we talk about disparities in the, in the prison system. We talk about that. Our concern is – and should be the current the concern of every American uh, out there is that, you know, if I put an African American in a courtroom and I put another a Caucasian in the courtroom, um, how fair will I be treated? Now, statistically, it's a huge disparity in sentencing for minorities or plea deals that may not have the same type of impact, if you will, or power punch to convince a defendant to plead out in a case that is something because statistically it has been proven to be a problem continues to be a problem and nobody wants to talk about that but then we want to have a conversation about mass incarceration how do we empty our prisons you be fair yeah yeah so actually one of the ways um in our system where uh, minorities are dealt a bad blow, but the statistics don't always show it, is there's a a number of studies indicate, for example, that the failure to get pretrial bail is um, related to actually getting a sentence that involves incarceration and getting a longer sentence. And what the statistics show on the front end is that minorities, for example, are less likely to get that pretrial bail. And for some reasons, um, it is both express as well as implicit discrimination because, for example, pretrial bail decisions may be related to socioeconomic aspects, which, as we know in this country, minorities are less likely to be socioeconomically – have good indicators to the judge or whoever is the bail person that they might be good on release. Um, so it's actually sometimes it's not just that sentencing that we we can kind of perceive some minority effects is at even earlier times in the process. And one of the things I think that um, underlies the question is in terms of 
are you guilty versus innocent is presumption is that we have basically in most of our um, jurisdictions here in the U.S. something like a 90-plus percent rate of plea bargains of guilty. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So to that extent, I think that does support the question. No, no, I agree with you, uh, Melissa. We're going to take a quick break. Can you join us on the other side of the break? We'd like to get your closing remarks and statements. Uh, ask you a couple more questions, and, and, and that definitely let you have a good rest of the evening uh, on the other side of this break. Can you come back with us for a few minutes? Yes, I can. Okay, we appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, Melissa Hamilton, uh, I'll tell you, saying it like it is, and uh, I'll tell you what, these, this insight is critically important to us at least as, a, as the American people, as a society, to address these issues and to jump on board and work together, uh, whether it's Melissa Hamilton, whether it's Molly Gill, or whatever group is saying we must do something. And I'll tell you what, Melissa Hamilton is putting it exactly how it is. She's joining us on the other side of this break. Some closing statements as we continue to fight this Battle, if you will, if you will, of our criminal justice system that's gone away. We'll be right back. This is AJC Radio, bringing the message of justice all around the world. We'll be right back. Black History Month is a month of celebration, uh, a month of you know how far we've come, uh, our past, our people of today. Uh, just a celebration of all Black culture. The opportunities that we have today would not exist without the sacrifices of those before us. They really paved the way for us. The things that really matter during the month is just to continue to push forward, to make sure we continue honoring those thoughts and, you know, those individuals. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment. Uh, religion. Or prohibiting the free exercise. Thereof. Or abridging the freedom of speech. Or of the press. Or the right. Of the people. Peaceably. To assemble. And to petition. The government. For a redress of grievances. Do you know anyone who's been sent to prison who's innocent? The United States is experiencing record numbers of exonerations in cases where people were wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not commit. If you believe that no one should be sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit, there is something that you can do today. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause at 855-529-4252 or visit a-justcause.com and click the donate button. A just cause is a 501c3. Wrongful convictions are wrong. Let's be the voice of those who can't speak from behind the wall. Over a million people are sitting in the prisons of America for nonviolent offenses. That's why I'm asking you to join the American Civil Liberties Union and help us in the fight to end mass incarceration. We spend over $80 billion a year incarcerating people. 
alternatives to prison, like community service, drug treatment, and rehabilitation, costs less and can turn lives around. It's time for fair justice. It's time for smart justice. And we need your help. And welcome back in. This is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. Tonight, a very interesting discussion on the sentencing issues, cruel and unusual sentencing, and abuse in America's courts and its prisons. And uh, we've been fortunate tonight, uh, joining us right now, back with us, if you will, Melissa Hamilton. Uh, she is the visiting criminal law scholar. Uh, I'll tell you what, has done some things and done some research and has spoken very clearly uh, on this major issue. Melissa, thanks for coming back with us. Uh, you're welcome. Okay, and uh, Melissa, tell us a little bit in closing, and I, I say this all the time when we're dealing with an issue on this level, how do we paint a picture of optimism, if you will, to folks that have loved ones behind the wall, that feel like, you know, you know how many uh, applications that are turned in for clemency, you know, how many people are trying to find justice? How many people are fighting the good fight, if you will, with a very imperfect system? Uh, how do we go about creating some optimism and saying, look, there is hope for a way out? Or do we have to be realistic as well that, yeah, there's a way out, but it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of people coming together to make that change happen? What are your thoughts on that optimistically as we seek out and, and seek solutions and resolutions to these problems? So the optimism is that, number one, uh, no longer is crime the most one of the top priorities for citizens in this country. It had been when all this ratcheted up, meaning that we increased our incarceration rate and our prison population in the 70s, 80s, 90s. It was part in part because public polls would indicate that people – would rate at, you know, one of their top three concerns is crime, drug crime, and violent crime in particular. No longer is regular crime in the priority list. In other words, um, terrorism is, but that's not, you know, the same as your local crime. In other words, that hopefully that um, your politicians respond to that in that they don't see uh, criminal justice issues, at least in terms of being more harsh on criminals, as one of the priorities for their uh, citizens um, and their constituents. The second thing is that there are some highlights in some states, some very conservative states like Texas, where I am, where very some very conservative um, policy groups have actually convinced legislators that it's, it costs too much money to have your very punitive policies. In other words, that diversion programs may be more cost-effective. And the way that that is feeding um, the conservative movement is money, less money to those efforts. So that is a hope. I mean, again, being it, okay. for that occurring in Texas is amazing. And the other thing I would offer them is the facts. So you had been highlighting the facts. 
There are a lot of statistics that support the idea that incarcerating many people and for longer periods of time are not beneficial to society, do not um, in, increase public safety. So for those of your listeners, I encourage you to reach out to the researchers like me who are happy usually to point out the studies for you that you can give to your politicians or to your advocacy groups that, that indicate here are the empirical studies that support the ideas that this type of offender or you know, this type of crime is actually not as high of a risk to future danger as politicians or, other, or you know, just regular citizens might otherwise believe. So I embrace all that because we can give you those studies and the statistics. No, absolutely, Melissa. And I think that's something that uh, has to be pointed out. And, and the, again, the work that you do, we commend you. Um, and you're truly a resource of information. Uh, without education and learning the facts and having people doing what you do, uh, a lot of people would be in the dark on how to get out of this situation, uh, how to approach their elected officials. And uh, our hats off to you here at AJC Radio. We commend you sincerely for your hard work and your efforts. We can't say enough uh, to say thank you uh, for taking time out of your schedule to be a part of this very important discussion that I'm sure uh, we'll have again. If folks want to get a hold of you for that research, Melissa, is there a way they can reach you uh, to reach out and say, look, I need more information. I want to educate myself as well as we continue to try to fight this battle of injustice. Sure. They can Google my name with the University of Houston Law Center and they'll find my contact information. Okay. We do appreciate you, Melissa. And thank you so much again. Try to have a good rest of the evening. And uh, I believe your conversation and information tonight that you've given us and to our listeners uh, is very valuable and we appreciate it so very, very much. I'm sure we'll be in touch again for further programming as well. Well, thank you for your program tonight. Okay. Thank you and take care. Well, there you have it. Melissa Hamilton, um, University of Houston Law Center, faculty. Uh, I'll tell you what, William, as you begin to talk to her uh, in regards to the statistics, through her studies, through her research, uh, that is what brings us to the point of educating America. The criminal justice system has a very, um, uh, what would you say, has a very indirect way, if you will, of not having the American people informed. The less, it's like the less you know, the more we can conceal and hide as far as our conduct and what's going on. Knowledge is power, and that's something that's said all the time. These two ladies, Molly Gill and Melissa Hamilton, are putting information out there that can really at least light a fire under you to say, look, we must pull together and these are not, and I think Melissa made it plain, the facts. These are facts that mass incarceration does not work. That other countries, as well as states, who are starting to say, let's find an alternative to the sentencing issues that we have in this country. As, as Molly alluded to, you can put some of these people on home confinement. If I'm at a prison camp where I can walk out the front door, there is no fence then why not put those folks at home? That's true. That's true. Why not? Well, I mean, really what they've done is they, they, have, they are out here. They're saying, listen, this system is a facade. They're pulling back the curtains on the system Absolutely. and saying this is the ugly truth about our system. 
it is a constant. It is, it, we need to stop living behind these blinders or thinking that we, uh, it's not the way it is. It is this way. The mandatory minimums are, are an effort to, to group people together or judge people by one standard, which is not right. It takes away the discretion of the judge. The judge has no in, uh, say really into the case. Um, it, it's amazing. But the, like you said, the statistics show the ugly truth behind this mass incarceration 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 gotcha. I'll be able to say that here in a second no worries um it's it's true and we cannot avoid it Lisa well I think also uh William one of the big issues is the money that they're making off of all this that's true they're making too much money they don't want to let people go home they don't want to send people home even though they could have the same kind of uh security with them at home that they have in some of these prisons they don't want to do that because they're going to lose that money. They collect all this money. They have all these. They have these big budgets, and they keep it for themselves. They don't use it for what it's supposed to be used for, and they are not going to just give that up without a fight. They're not going to let go of that. No, they're not, and, and that's something, again, uh, as uh, Melissa and Bali both alluded to, it hasn't always been this way. Uh, and to Dennis's point, the presumption of guilt, and let me say this, you are presumed guilty until proven innocent in a court of law. Those are the facts, uh, and that's exactly what's happening in this country. And, it, Cliff, when you think about it, uh, we have an uphill battle to climb here. Uh, and as long as, as Lisa alluded to, people are making money, people are doing these things, and it becomes big business, we'll never see the change we need to see. But at the, at the end of the day, our economy suffers, our families suffer, our inner cities suffer. Everybody suffers as a result of this one issue of abuse in sentencing and disparities in the sentencing process in this country right now. Yeah, and, you know, we have to take the, the fight, you know, through education to, uh, you know, the, the big businesses that basically are running the prison system. I mean, you have the school to prison pipeline. You have the, uh, you know, the, the prison um you know, industrial complex where basically incarcerated individuals are being used as slave labor to, you know, build products for these corporations. And until the fight is taken there, uh, you know, that's why you don't see much change. When when Obama was in office and he said, you know, we're going to we're going to close out the private prisons, uh, you know, they they lobbied. To stay open. Why? Because of the amount of money. And to keep the private prison open, you have to keep you have to keep those beds filled. And for the states to guarantee to these private prisons that we will have, you know, 95, 96 percent of the beds filled. How do you guarantee that people are going to commit crimes? It, the only way to do that is that you have hmm. to you have to unfairly sentence people. You have to uh, criminalize things that are not crimes. And it all boils down to the dollar bill. And until the public becomes educated about that and, uh, you know, through organizations like uh, FAM and uh, people like Melissa Hamilton that that continue to fight and make an effort toward educating the public, that is where we have to take the fight. And uh, that, that's what we have to do to change it. No, absolutely. Cliff, good point there. And uh, a very special thanks. Let us say again, thank you to Melissa Hamilton, Molly Gill, for your insight in this topic 
and doing this dialogue tonight. We are so appreciative, and I think we're well informed as well as our listeners uh, of what challenges we face. But uh, this is the way you get the information out. Thank you so much, ladies, for joining us tonight. Right now, we turn the page to what you didn't know about the RP6. It starts right now. A just cause has found something very interesting. A playwright by Judge H. Lee Serrigan about the IRP-6. It starts right now. Take a look. My name is David Banks, and I'm serving an 11-year sentence at the Federal Correctional Complex Prison Camp in Florence, Colorado. I've lost everything. My business, my money, my family, my future, my church, and my freedom. And they wanted people to sign non-disclosure agreements and all that kind of stuff. Sometimes they didn't want to do it. Strange. I think it's still strange. It just absolutely makes no sense. Is this really real? Is this happening? And then all of a sudden, your whole life is ripped apart. Justice is not fair anymore. They say justice is supposed to be blind. It's not blind. It's not blind. They pick and choose who they want to convict and who they want to send to. Ladies and gentlemen of America, what is going on when innocent men get locked away? Ladies and gentlemen, have you stopped to ask the question, where is justice? It's far away. The RP6, David Banks, Gary Walker, Demetrius Harper, Kendrick Barnes, Dave Zapolo and Clinton Stewart have pondered that question, where is justice? What you didn't know about the IRP-6 case is the question. They were floored that uh, they were even being raided. It became very clear that the court-appointed attorneys were not working for the guys. Um, and it seemed like in many cases that they were um, collaborating or working with the prosecution. We constantly hear in the news, every week you're going to hear about another person wrongfully convicted. And this is a unique case in the sense that you have six men, six businessmen that have been wrongfully convicted. You would think the media would jump all over. There you have it. Tough questions in need for answers. Lady Justice has gone missing. Where is she? The RP6 and countless thousands are seeking her out. What you didn't know about the RP6 story to be continued. What you didn't know about the RP6. Tonight we focus on court reporter Darlene Martinez. Court records show that attorney Gwendolyn Solomon, appellant attorney for the RP6, filed a motion with the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals requesting their intervention rather, in resolving issues surrounding the alleged missing transcripts in the RP6 case. The petition for writ of mandamus addresses issues critical to the appeal of the RP6 case. 
Attorney Solomon requested that the Tenth Circuit Court uh, reporter Darlene Martinez was to release the complete unedited verbatim transcripts and any electronic, digital, and audio recordings related to transcripts in question. The court order from the United States Courts of Appeal for the Tenth Circuit states, Kendrick Barnes, Demetrius Harper, Clinton Stewart, Gary Walker, Davis Apollo, and David Banks have filed a petition for a writ of mandamus, seeking an order requiring the district court to release an edited transcript of a bench conference from their jury trial. Petitioners filed several motions related to this transcript issue in the district court, and all of them were denied. Tonight, we focus on court reporter Darlene Martinez, who failed to even uphold the law in in regards to the the clerk uh, court reporters act, Cliff, that that is actually part of the Constitution that has to be honored and carried out. She failed to do so, but she collected almost $10,000 stating as an independent contractor that she would produce those transcripts. She did not, but she cashed the check. Right, and that issue uh, was brought before the courts, and it it really is disheartening to see that, um, you know, that a person can basically get away with – with highway robbery if you're if you're an employee of the federal government that you know when Darlene Martinez as you stated you know basically became an independent contractor when she uh, signed that contract cashed that check ex- accepted the money for providing the transfer right. and when it came down that she didn't provide what she had uh, contracted for that the federal government jumped in to uh, to protect her for the crime that she had committed and that's when you find out that uh, you know, the the whole system is set against members of the general public, against citizens of the United States. It's all about protecting federal employees, and you know you don't you don't know that until you go through something uh, like what the IRP six did, when you go through something like what uh, a just cause did in the fight for them. That um, you know you you realize that the federal government is not on the side of the ordinary citizen. And what doesn't make sense, Cliff, is that I know from my wrongful conviction, when I had to request transcripts, uh, I had to go to each clerk, uh, court reporter who was in the courtroom during this two-week period of the trial, uh, and they were different uh, court, uh, court reporters. I had to go to each of those court reporters individually and contact them and say, I need a copy and had to make separate money orders for the cost of those transcripts, and they were made not to the state of Colorado, as in this case, it wasn't made out to the U.S. government. It was made directly in the name of the court reporters. Again, they are independent, and this comes from a supervisor who oversees court reporters who told me this. They are, that has nothing to do with the court. It is an independent work assignment, if you will, that that reporter is paid for. How in the world, as, as Cliff alludes to here, do you pay that amount of money for services rendered and you fail to render those services? Because in this case of the IRP-6, in this case, we look at a situation where um, uh, services were not provided. Transcripts were missing that prove violation of the Constitution of the United States and compelling witnesses to testify by by Judge Christine Arguello. 
this is outrageous. To be continued, this discussion will continue. Lisa, perpetrators of justice who are responsible for this huge injustice to the RP6 guys. Who are they and what are their names? They are U.S. Attorney John Walsh, Assistant U.S. Attorney Matthew Kirsch, Assistant U.S. Attorney Sunita Hazra, Attorney Greg Goldberg, Federal Judge Christine Arguello, Appellate Judge Jerome Holmes, Appellate Judge Bobby Baldock, Appellate Judge Harris Hart, Federal Judge R. Brooke Jackson, Magistrate Judge Craig Schaefer, Court Reporter Darlene Martinez, FBI Agent John Smith, FBI Agent Robert Mullen, Former Federal Agent John Epke, Former Federal Agent Gary Hilberry, Attorney Thomas Goodread, Attorney Clifford Barnard, Attorney Thomas Ward, Attorney Robert Berger, Attorney Mitchell Baker, Attorney Boston Stanton Jr., Attorney Rick Kornfeld, Attorney Mark Garagos, Susan Holland of EPI Professional Services, and Samuel K. Thurman. And make no mistake about it, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. The words of the late Dr. Martin Luther King, we fight for justice for the RP6, and we will find it. Good night, America. We'll see you next time. Thank mm-hmm. you.